0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to New Books in History. This is Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Julia Leite about her new book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, a true story of sex, crime, and the meaning of justice. Julia, welcome to the show.
1: It's lovely to be here, Pamela.
0: Uh, Julia, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Of course. Um, So I'm a historian. Uh, I call myself a social historian of Britain and the British world. And my expertise lies in the history of women, crime and migration, and specifically sexual labor and trafficking. Um, I'm originally from St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada, but I've been living in Britain for the past 20 years. Okay, great. Well,
0: let's talk about it, all the work you have doing uh, by writing this book. So, I was wondering, how did Lydia Harvey's story found you, or how did you find her story?
1: Oh, I love I love this question because it really was one of those moments where it did just kind of fall into into my lap. And I found I found her story a very long time ago, about a decade ago. As part of a general research I was doing into the history of trafficking and and prostitution in early 20th century Britain, and her case file, the investigation into the case of of trafficking in which she was involved, in which she was a victim, was one of hundreds that I had looked at um, compiling what I thought was going to be information uh, for, for a book that was going to be about how trafficking law was applied and what its consequences were in early 20th century Britain. And I started to work on that book, and I just kept thinking about Lydia Harvey and this young woman who had been trafficked from New Zealand to Buenos Aires and then to London. And I I just really started wondering, you know, I wonder if I can find out more about her. I wonder if I can more fully contextualize her life. And so it started from there, from this Metropolitan Police file at the National Archives in, in London. Um, and and then I I chased it around the world from there.
0: And, well, just before we dive into her story and all of the characters, can you explain to the audience how did you decide to structure the book? Why the narrative of the book is one character per chapter. Anyway, you tell the listeners about that,
1: please. Of course. And it, it in some ways, the polyvocality um, wasn't my first intention. So I had thought maybe I can write a book about Lydia Harvey, uh, you know, every chapter about her, about her story. And I, that kind of fell to the wayside when I realized I can't, there's, there's aspects of her life that I can't know enough about. But I also started reflecting, you know, why am I deeply contextualizing the young woman in this story, the victim of trafficking, um, and not contextualizing the other people whose lives were entangled with hers? Um, Because the the argument for that kind of deep contextualization and the insights that it brings is the the same argument for, for, for the police officers in the story, for the journalist in the story, for the social worker in the story. And so that's when I started thinking, I'm, I'm going to kind of give them all that same deep contextualizing life story kind of treatment. Um, and once I started doing that, I realized it was also such an important technique specifically for dealing with the history of what came to be called trafficking in this era, because it's, it's such a complex phenomenon. It looks different depending on whose eyes you see it through and i decided that this was the perfect way to play with with that idea to present a kind of history in the round that allowed each of those perspectives to bubble to the surface and allowed readers to engage with those different ways of looking at the the individual story that i was telling but also the wider history of of what we call trafficking
0: yeah and i i love how you wrote in this research note This is a true story, but it is also a story that insists we think carefully about who gets to do the telling. And I think from from this, probably the the voice uh, that you didn't find that much was Lydia's voice herself, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. And Lydia's, so, and that's exactly it. I say, you know, we, we, we have to think carefully about who does, who gets to do the telling. And Lydia Harvey, didn't get to tell her own story, she gave a witness statement that I use a lot in in the book to to tease out what she may have thought and felt. But ultimately, she left no ego documents behind. And of course, lots of amazing historical work has been done talking about how the witness statement or the court deposition is itself a performed and often coerced script. And so I was really careful to, to not assume that those those words that she said were exactly her telling her story on her own terms. And so she is, you know, the the title, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, has a lot of different layers to it, and one of the, them is the way that she disappears within the stories that were being told about her. and. So she, she was a star witness, according to the police. She was a, a morality tale, according to the journalist. Um, and in a wider sense, young women who were labeled as victims of quote unquote, white slavery or trafficking always played this kind of symbolic role. Um, you know, held up as an ideal victim or disregarded as, as, as somebody who could not be victimized because they were already ruined. Um, very, very rarely did we ever, are we ever given a chance to see you know their, their own story and who they really were. And so I play with that quite a bit. And, and that's where the polyvocality comes in, that kind of history in the round, because you see Lydia through so many other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. But the book is framed by her story. I can't really say that it's told from her perspective, but those are the chapters in which I try really hard to capture how she may have thought, how she may have felt, what her dreams and aspirations were and what it was like to experience what she went through um, in terms of coerced commercial sex um, trafficking and eventual repatriation to New Zealand.
0: And I'm, I'm glad you brought the phrase dreams and aspiration or these words, because I think in order to understand those dreams and, and aspirations, we need to go back a little bit and talk about Emily Lewis Badley, Lydia's mother who is a character in herself, right? Very interesting, but how can we understand the choices of women like Emily and Lydia through the family relations they
1: built at the time
0: and the relationships they had with their community because of the family they had?
1: That's a really good question. And um, it took me so long to find Emily Louisa Baddeley, um, Lydia's mother, and as you can, As as astute listeners will pick up on, she doesn't have the same surname as her daughter. Um, And I was just, just revelation after revelation came once I found her name and started learning more about her life. Um, So Emily Louisa Badley was a working class young woman who was abandoned, uh, orphaned, or her mother died and then abandoned by her father. And she was raised by a ward in Dunedin in New Zealand um, in the 1870s and 80s and found herself pregnant out of wedlock with Lydia Harvey um, in 1892. Um, and I, I'll, I'll, you, <laughs> maybe you'll invite me to talk about the role of her father who I also found eventually um, later. But Emily, Emily Badley raised Lydia as a single mother and ended up having many other children by other fathers um, only married much later in her life. And so she ended up with eight daughters in the end, um, without a father in sight. And it's just this incredible story because there's been some excellent scholarship on um, motherhood and families in New Zealand at this time. And she was uh, Emily Badley was an absolute anomaly. Um, it was very rare to have this big a family, um, all children out of wedlock. And I got really interested in you know how she navigated that. She was a music teacher, and she lived in a small town. Everyone must have known her. Everyone must have known her family and her eldest daughter. And you know, I think quite hard about how she fit within that community. And I try not to make too many assumptions. Um, you know, in terms of oh, she she must have been ostracized, um, or she must have struggled, because I think the record on Emily Badley just shows again and again that she was incredibly resourceful. Didn't seem to care very much what anyone anyone else thought, um, and and was a you know a well known music teacher in the community. So I'm, I get really interested with with people like this in the past because they they really challenge assumptions that we make when we don't um, kind of think about the people at the heart of these historical records. Um, they 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 defy our expectations. They're they're not stock characters, um, and and. Because of that, they're just so incredibly idiosyncratic, and they tell us so much about lived experience. I think at the time. So yeah, that was that was that was her mother, a very interesting character in her own right.
0: Yes, and what was the role of Lydia in a family with seven sisters and she being the oldest? What happened with with her in this family?
1: Yeah. So I I. I, this is where I make a very educated uh, interpretive leap and assume that as the eldest daughter in a family with seven younger siblings, including many that were quite a lot younger than her, she, her, her life consisted of a heck of a lot of work and childcare within the family home. So much labor must have fallen to her. That's a very, very typical pattern for eldest, eldest daughters at this time, and I think a lot of people would recognize that as eldest daughters even in the present day, um, you know, the, the, the work that falls to them as, as surrogate parents um, and as household laborers. And so there's, there's one moment when her, her mother brings news to her of another, uh, another baby on the way, and in fact it's a set of twins ultimately, so two babies are, are born when she's uh, 15, 16 years old. Um, And as I say in the book, you know, this is very likely to have helped precipitate her desire to, to, to move out and, and, and find her own work and find her own way. Because even though she, she loved her sisters, if she stayed, she would disappear. Um, And so I think, I think a lot about, you know, how that contributed to her decisions and and her Um self-perception.
0: Talking about these different layers of disappearance, you know, the more you talk about that, the more I think about uh, Lydia disappearing from London to go to Buenos Aires with these two people, but also she like disappearing from the life she used to have before taking that trip to Buenos Aires and before knowing these two people. Can you talk about this? moment like this definitive moment in the life of Lydia because there are few months and her world just changed
1: exactly she she left Omeru which was the small town that she was born and what well, she wasn't born in but she was raised in and she she goes to Wellington um, part of an army of young women who are le- leaving smaller towns and rural communities all around the world in this period uh, to take up live-in domestic service, factory work, and shop work in bigger cities. And so she's, she's, she's making this move in the context of an era that's really obsessed with these girls. I'm using the word girl on purpose there because they were thought of as girls, not women. And so she's part of this army of disappearing girls, as I as I argue in the book, these these young women who have left the supposed safety and sanctity of their traditional family homes and who are moving into a global mobile workforce more than ever before um, in, in this period. And Lydia Harvey becomes one of them. So she disappears within that larger demographic of young women. But then she gets to Wellington, she starts working as a live-in domestic servant, absolutely hates it, um, as as do most people who, who work in that industry. And so she finds a job at a shop, but then she disappears from that role as well because she meets these two people, a man and a woman who promise that she'll, if she comes and works for them and sees gentlemen in Buenos Aires, She'll uh, never have to never have to worry about money. She'll have nice dresses. She'll be able to travel. She'll finally be able to get on one of those steamships that she sees in Wellington Harbour every day. And so she boards the steamship and then disappears right into those absolutely kind of stereotypical stories about trafficking that are being told in this era. So one of the things that interested me so much about Lydia Harvey's story when it first sort of appeared on my archive uh, table was the fact that it is so Almost like you can't make it up because it's so close to the kind of urban legends and moral panics about trafficking that were being told at the time. That a lot of my scholarship and a lot of other people's scholarship really works quite hard to unpick and sort of talk about how you know the trafficking was a moral panic. Obviously, it was a real experience, but also a moral panic. And so I was really interested to see you know how did this story unfold um, in 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 real time in a real life. And so I think about that that moment of disappearance as a moment, I think you said it best as her life just changes so dramatically and she's you know she's she's gone from this tiny town to Buenos Aires and that moment when she arrives in Buenos Aires and, and sees a city the size of which she's never seen before. Um, and all of these moments in which um, you know she disappears again and again and people can't find her. nobody knows where she is. Um, but I also play with this idea of of the fact that she's also disappearing into the story that um, is being told about her. Um, like I said, so she 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 becomes a, a, a character in this story. Um, and my mission in writing the book was to to try to recover her.
0: In chapter two, you follow the steps of, of Inspector Ernest Anderson and how he and his colleagues at the Metropolitan Police believe they could be investigating the biggest case of white slavery they had seen until then. How the narratives of trafficking shaped policing worldwide at the turn of the 20th century and how they shaped the case they were investigating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in that chapter it, it was it was where I really wanted to think about these narratives and legal frameworks that are starting to emerge around trafficking at the time and then how that kind of filters down to the level of of policing and the challenges that come along with it. So on the one hand, when Ernest Anderson finds this case and and thinks this this could be a really big case of white slavery, he's doing so in the atmosphere of um, a kind of global panic around sex trafficking um, where there's huge amounts of public demand and political demand to do something about the problem. But when it gets down to the level of policing, the sort of harsh reality is that the, the very simple stories about young women being kidnapped and imprisoned in brothels um, rarely actually are mirrored in reality. So, so Ernest Anderson is working within the context of these moral panics but in a case that's incredibly complex. And in that chapter, I really wanted to show the way that trafficking laws and policies develop, but then how they're actually applied. Because I think as a historian, I've always really been interested in that space, the space between what the law says and what the law does. Um, And I think that, yeah, I've always, that's always been kind of one of the key things that drives my my historical interest. and Ernest Anderson's story was really a way for me to highlight that. Because one of the first problems that he encounters in trying to prosecute this case is the fact that the law against trafficking is defined in a way that only allows a prosecution for procuring for the purposes of prostitution, trafficking that is, that's, that was the law they would be using. They're only, they can only have a prosecution for that if the woman is, and I quote, not already a common prostitute or of known immoral character so all the defense needed to do is prove that the women in the case were of known immoral character um, in order to to challenge the prosecution so that was the first problem he encounters is the fact that these young women who are supposed to be these ideal innocent victims according to the stories are not ideal innocent victims. Instead, they're complex human beings who have complex histories of work and sexual relationships. And so it's incredibly difficult for him to oversee the the prosecution. Um, And in terms of how this shapes things worldwide, this is also a moment at the dawn of international policing. So when the police are, are starting to get more coordinated in terms of communicating to other police forces around the world, And you really see this in the story. So Ernest Anderson is sending telegrams um, and letters, getting police records from Italy, police records from New Zealand, from Australia, from Argentina. Um, And so it's a really good example of the way that trafficking becomes one of the very first crimes or social problems to help shape international policing and the birth of Interpol um, itself. And what's really interesting here is because of course, there is no international law. And so one of the ways this really starts to get expressed is through the control of migration and the surveillance of migration. And this is a legacy that goes right up into the present day where trafficking is defined as a social problem about um, women's rights, about sexual crime, um, about labor exploitation, but it's policed as a form of illegal migration. And watching Ernest Anderson try to square that circle feels very similar to to watching policymakers um, and policy implementers trying to to do so today. I think we see really similar disconnects today where the policing of trafficking becomes the policing of migration, um, as though that's going to fix the social problems that are underlying it.
0: And when following the challenges of Anderson in finding an ideal victim to prosecute, Uh, these procurer's pimps at at the time, it is important to think about the role of the press in building narratives of trafficking. And that's what you do in chapter three, The Newsman. You said that any journalist who worked after 8085 did so in one way or another in the shadow of the maiden tribute of modern Babylon. Can you explain what's the global legacy of this series of articles how they shaped these narratives that, at the end, enter the courtrooms.
1: Yeah, this is uh, the maiden tribute of modern Babylon. For those who don't know it, is uh, was an expose about child prostitution that was published by William Stead in the Pall Mall Gazette in London in 1885. Um, and I don't have time to get into its kind of complex origin story or, um, in some ways, its aftermath. But suffice to say that it was for a very long time and arguably even in the present day, the biggest selling newspaper scandal of all time. Uh, it's, it gave birth to the idea of investigative journalism to sensational reporting, melodramatic reporting. Um, Stead himself of course did that through several different journalistic interventions he made but none more so than the Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. It's difficult to understate just how immense this scandal was. It was being sold to newspapers all around the world. Original copies of the Pall Mall Gazette were selling for three hundred dollars in Australia, for example. Um, people couldn't wait to get their hands on it. And there's two really important parts of it that I think it casts a very long shadow. One is the way in which it frames what trafficking or exploited prostitution looks like which is perpetrated against innocent very young white women in the first instance so it paints this image of an ideal victim of trafficking in fact it invents this ideal victim Um, he calls her lily um, which is very symbolic but on the other hand it also shows how this kind of sensationalism around sex trafficking, helped to sell newspapers. So in Stead's view, this was justifiable sensationalism. He was using it in order to press for important social change. Uh, but the, the side effect, or perhaps not so side effect, was that it sold newspapers. It was stories that people wanted to read and it wasn't just because they were interested in the social problem. It's because it was titillating, it was sexually stimulating. And I think that kind of, way in which trafficking was narrated by Stead is the same way that sex trafficking functions as a plot point or as a headline fodder in our present. And it's certainly how it was functioning in 1910 when Lydia Harvey was going through her own experience of trafficking in that it set up these expectations for what victims were supposed to look like, what perpetrators were supposed to look like. And it also set up the, the the basic fact that these stories sold. And so more and more reporters are out looking for these stories, um, stoking these urban legends, but very rarely offering any kind of complexity, you know, um, behind the headlines.
0: And another chapter is The Rescue. And you you wrote these complex stories in each chapter but somehow I found this one being probably the most most complex of all of them because of all the different angles and the different experiences and all the different aspects of society that the lives of women like Aileen McDowell covers at the time. I would like to talk a little bit about her because in several parts of the book you mention how in these trials where uh, sexual crimes are brought to the stage women couldn't be in, in in the room because it could be like no, this is not for them to hear. However, Ellie McDougall was a lady assistant for the Metropolitan Police. She was being called at late at night just to not just to, but to be part of that, to take statements. Uh, This is a fascinating character. So can you talk a little bit more about her and if she was a common character, there were more Ailey McDougall's or she's very particular?
1: I could talk about Ailey McDougall for a very long time. (laughs) So I think I'll start with the question about whether she was typical or not. Um, I think she was part of a small army of People who would refer to themselves as social workers or as rescue workers um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So these were typically women who came from families who had some means, so they could uh, they could afford to to work for very little pay doing this work. But with families who, they were also people who who had a very strong sense of. Um, you know, wanting to do this kind of social work, but I also think Eileen McDougall is is unique in that she comes across as, as particularly attuned to the injustices that women suffered, um, and particularly thoughtful about how those injustices could be dealt with, um, and and how how justice might be served. So she starts out um, her career as a rescue worker mostly going into workhouses, which is where a lot of young women who were pregnant out of wedlock would be giving birth, or to mother and baby homes, which were run by private charities. And her role was just to check in on these women, see if they were okay. And in this role, she started encountering many, many young women who were telling her that they became pregnant through um, familial abuse, what was then called incest, or by um, institutional abuse or by other kind of intimate abuse. So in their neighborhood or a boyfriend or what have you. And so Eileen McDougall um, made it one of her roles to find fathers and bring them um, under bastardy orders, but also to prosecute cases of rape and incest. Um, and so she would sort of be regularly seen showing up at a police station with a young woman willing to make a statement. And eventually the police said, "Do." You, do you actually want to take this role on? And they gave her this job of lady assistant for the Metropolitan Police. Um, and her job was to take statements from young women um, who had experienced incest, trafficking, familial abuse. Um, this was, I think, primarily because the male police officers did not want to do it. But I think it was also because the police understood that this was a serious issue that um, Eileen McDougall was particularly well suited to address. And so by 1910, more and more funding is being funneled towards these um, anti-trafficking organizations and, and uh, what we would now call safe houses or rescue homes for, for women who had been um, victims of this. And so they offer to Eileen McDougall to to run one. And so she sets up this, this home as well um, to quote unquote rescue victims of initially trafficking. That's where the funding came from. Um, but one of the great complexities in that chapter is very quickly the home's residents are, you know, the, the home's residents who are trafficking victims become seriously outnumbered by the young women who had experienced abuse far closer to home. And one of the key things I really wanted to bring out in this chapter, and Eileen McDougall says this incredibly eloquently herself in the very little writing that she left behind. I think she was too busy to do much writing, actually. Um, she says, you know, this is, you know, oftentimes it's it's the home, the place that the woman is assumed to be safe. It's, it's, that's the place where she encounters the most danger. Um, and these narratives about trafficking, about these foreign traffickers taking women outside of the, the nation and putting them in some foreign nation in some foreign brothel, brothel these stories are the easy ones. These are the stories we want to hear. What we don't want to hear are the far, far more common stories of young women for whom their their home was the, the least safe place for them to be. Um, and so Eileen McDougall is just acutely aware that leaving, rather than these, these moral panic stories that say women should stay home because if they leave their home, they'll get into trouble in the big city. Um, Eileen McDougall understood that for thousands of women, home was the thing they needed to leave to make themselves safe. Um, and so she tries to provide a kind of alternate home for some of these young women within, within the confines of what she could do in the early 19th century with no social, you know, no social welfare systems or anything like that. And within the confines of her own ideas about what these young women should be doing. So I don't wanna to paint too romantic a portrait of her. She was also a woman of her time. Um, But it's absolutely fascinating to see her navigate these systems and fight for the rights of of victims of of sexual assault who were just systematically invisibilized by the media um, and and by politics.
0: And I just want to talk a little bit more about one of the points you made in this chapter, some of the motives that uh, moved behind charity and social work at the time. That was, as you mentioned, formed by middle class women and for this chapter, for a part of this chapter, you talk about the concept of tender traffic developed at April Haynes. What is tender traffic and why it made sense in this chapter?
1: Yeah I absolutely love April Haynes' work, um, and her, her book is forthcoming. Um, and this is she, she's talking about a totally different context of, of rescue workers working in um, the United States in the early 19th century. Um, and they're rescuing these young women from brothels, and April um, puts it very evocatively, she says they were rescuing they wanted to rescue them out of brothels and put them into kitchens. And this is a phenomenon we see stretching from the 19th century all the way up, well, arguably into the present day, and certainly at Lydia Harvey's time in the early 20th century, where the idea was that there, there, was, a, there was a serious labor shortage in terms of domestic labor. These young women like Lydia Harvey, who were starting to really hate domestic service, um, well, I think they probably always hated it, but at long last there were, there were labor alternatives for these young women including factory work, including shop work, and including sex work. And so the, one of the, the sort of main sources for this, this domestic labor was poor young women who had fewer choices because they had been victimized or because they had been pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and so the role of Eileen McDougall and many, many other rescue workers were very often to rescue these women from their bad situations, whether or not they wanted to be rescued, and to retrain them in domestic service. So, you see a lot of these um, rescue homes, not the one that Eileen McDougal ran, but others, who very explicitly say, you know, we're taking these errant young women, kind of semi criminal, women who's selling sex, women who've had babies out of wedlock, we're taking them in and sheltering them explicitly to retrain them. While they're being trained, they're going to work in our laundry, and their unpaid labor is going to fund our institution. Um, and you see this replicated over and over again. The, obviously, the most well-known story is of the Magdalen laundries in Ireland, which is one of the most grievous examples in the early 20th century of rescuing women and then forcing them to perform domestic labor. Um, but this is being replicated the world over um, by a capitalist and globalizing capitalist society that is desperate for the cheap, flexible labor of these young women. Um, And so the panic about sex trafficking is constantly being entangled with the other side of the coin, which is the fact that while they're worrying about the exploitation of these women in sex work, they are simultaneously exploiting them in other forms of cheap, exploited work, the most of all within domestic service. But there are other examples as well, including the entertainment industry, which I talk a little bit about in the book
0: and of course one of the big puzzles in this trafficking narrative were traffickers themselves so in one of your chapters you talk about Antonio Carvel which is the, the trafficker of Lydia Harvey and you mentioned that men like him occupied a particular place in public imagination they are despicable and fascinating and you, quote, you you said, and I quote, in other words, people love to hate them. Why was that?
1: Yeah, this is, I mean, as you can probably tell from reading Antonio Carvelli's chapter, I could have written an entire book about him. Um, I easily could have made a book about him. Um, I did consider it briefly, but ultimately I decided I didn't want him to have the last or the only word on the story. I couldn't bring myself to write a whole book about this guy. Yeah. Um, that being said, he is in- incredibly charming and fascinating and disturbing um, and human ultimately. And that's what I wanted to do in that chapter. I wanted to, to take the stereotype of the pimp and trafficker, um, which which exactly was this, they were called beasts in human clothing, fiends in the shape of a man, they were considered to be the most despicable of all criminals. Um, And I say, as I say in the book, you know, the police had more sympathy for murderers than they did for pimps and traffickers. They really thought of them as the bottom of the barrel. And so I thought quite deeply about what it was like to be Antonio Carvelli, who was incredibly dedicated to his own self-fashioning, who had a very, clear idea of himself as a, a man of business, as an entrepreneur, as a respectable, well-dressed person, um, and how he navigated his life and his identity um, in the context of these images. Um, and it, it really it really is fascinating. He ends up with, I think I identified about 16 different pseudonyms at the end of the day. You probably had more. He's probably evaded me several times. Um, and I did, you know. I I, I try to be really careful with him because it's it's hard, you know, striking a balance because obviously he he was a person who did terrible things and and probably did them far more than once. Um, But I am always really troubled when particular kinds of criminals, especially men who are who are guilty of, of sexual crimes, are turned into monsters because I think that's a very convenient narrative for for us to be able to say, you know, to to, to, to paint these people as monsters. And I think that's why pimps occupy that quite interesting space within cultural imagination right up into the present day, that kind of love to hate them Um, because they, you know, we can caricaturize them, we can monstrosize them. And that enables us to not have to think about them as integral parts of a global economy, as part of wider societies, as doing something that's not so different from the kinds of exploitations that we're perfectly comfortable with or that we don't talk about. And so, I really tried to put him in that context. Um, he's uh, hes very fascinating, um, and I think I say at one point, you know, he was obviously a very fascinating um, human being, and, and definitely not one of the best ones. But at the same time you know, not a monster, and he cannot be understood on those terms.
0: And, and on one of your last chapters, you talk about Veronique Sarah White. And it was really interesting because while I was reading the chapter, what came to mind were images of objects, of material culture. You no know, sewing machine, a brass plaque, uh, when she uh, wrote uh, another name and dressmaker, silk, and Nelly Stuart Bangle, a fur coat after leaving prison. So I wanted to end with this, asking you if you could pick one of these objects to explain, Veronique, and what's the meaning of this object in the story you narrate?
1: Oh, that's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you picked up on that, because Veronique, yeah, Veronique, who is um, Antonio Cavalli's wife, she's also a sex worker, and in her chapter i really tried to you know because we have we have lydia harvey who's had an incredibly negative experience of selling sex who doesn't sell sex for very long um and who 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 has a very you know who is a victim in the story and veronique's story challenges that and contrasts it because veronique is working for a very long time in the sex industry seems to have made very good for herself i obviously there's a lot of complexity to that not least the fact that she also was victimizing other women. So her story is is so is, was such a difficult one for me to tell. And as she sort of started to emerge through the archive, because she was the very last person I was able to find, she's only ever identified by a pseudonym in the case files. So she's never named in any of the case files. And it was only because I managed to find a marriage certificate between her and Antonio Carvelli um, in which her name was completely misspelled. But I I managed to find it um, by purposely misspelling her name over and over again until it came up. (laughs) Anyways, very long story, but I didn't think I was going to find anything about her. And I started to find more and more, you know, obviously, once I got her real name. And then a picture of this woman emerges who really feels like an avatar of the early 20th century, Uh, a woman who... Um, you know, is enjoying these new cultures, these new material cultures of consumer goods, who's traveling on steamships, who's seeing the world, who's, you know, making no apologies for how she's living. Um, and so, yeah, I just really started to see her as this very particular figure. And I think of all the, the, the material goods that I kind of identify and, and talk about um, her through, I think it's the Nellie Stewart bangle mm-hmm that I would pick to be most exemplary of her. So Nellie Stewart Bangles were all the rage in turn of the century Australia, named after a a light opera singer, who was a kind of the first, one of the very first Australian celebrities. And um, her lover gave her this very expensive gold bangle as a symbol of his undying affection, et cetera, et cetera. And it became very, very on trend for young women to, to have an Ellie Stewart bangle from their, from their beloved, from the, the, the man who was wooing them, um, as a token of love, often bef- just before marriage. Um, and Antonio Carvelli gives this to, to Veronique, um, inscribes it, um, and she wears it everywhere. And I think it's just really symbolic because I think that however easy it would be to, to just sort of paint the relationship between Veronique and Antonio Cavelli as exploitative, as ugly, um, that's obviously not the case. And I think that bangle just encapsulates a whole lot of complex stories about love and affection and commitment, but also about material wealth, um, about the pursuit of that wealth at any cost. Um, including um, the well-being of Lydia Harvey. Um, and it just, uh, you know, it I, I will never know how she made sense of herself. Um, but there's something about that bangle that I think tells us quite a lot about, about the woman who wore it.
0: And just before we end our conversation, we could be talking more and more, but I'm curious, is there any story you could not include? Or is there any source that, you would have dreamed to find in the archives and just you couldn't just to complete any of the different characters you were explaining for us.
1: Yeah, I think I'll start by saying of oh, talking about the moment when I did find um, something in the archive that I didn't think I'd, I'd be able to find because the, the book is built around. The archive file that I mentioned in London when we first started chatting and then another file that I found quite quickly through the work of another historian who was working on it for a different reason um, which is a case file that the police in Australia held about Antonio Carvelli so I thought those were my two central files and I was searching for other little bits and pieces through various different archives through genealogical records newspapers um, and then I but I knew that there was a kind of third part of the story, the part in New Zealand that I would never know until I got to Wellington and ordered a file that um, was a totally misspelled version of one of Antonio Carvelli's pseudonyms. And just on a whim, I ordered it up and it turned out to be the entire th- sort of third part of the story. Um, Absolutely revelation after revelation on every page, including the only images I have of Veronique Carvelli. Um And so it was just incredible. Um, but of course, finding that did make me constantly think about what I wasn't finding, you know, what, what parts of the story I could never know. And the most symbolic one of all is that I don't have a picture of Lydia Harvey. I, I could, I don't know what she looks like most tantalizingly of all. I do technically have a picture of her. I have a picture of her in a group of children, a school photograph, in which um, only about half the people are identified. So I know she's in there. I just don't know which which young woman or which which girl she is. And I think, yeah, if I had to, if I had to sort of dream of that missing archive file, it would be one that told me more about her, more about her early life, and more about her later life. Which I won't say anything about because I don't want. I don't want to spoil the ending of the story because I do save that part for the end. Um, But yeah, that's, that's what I wish I could know just a little bit more about, but I think, you know, in some ways the book operates in the shadow of all of the things that it can't know. And I think part of the point is that you'll, you're never going to know the full sort of thoughts and feelings of young women like Lydia Harvey they didn't write them down or if they did they didn't think they were worth saving or even if they did the archives probably didn't think they were worth saving um and so yeah i think i think playing with what i can and can't know was a major structuring force in the book um and i hope that i've left the readers enough space to imagine their own versions of the characters in the book
0: Well, Julia, congratulations for this amazing book and this amazing project. Is there anything else you are working on now? I mean, after all of this work, uh, I must ask for more work, right? Is there anything else you are doing
1: now? Yeah, I actually, I'm in in the very early days of a new project, which is actually quite a departure thematically. It's not about um, trafficking um, at all, but it is kind of it, it comes out of this book in two ways. One, um, in the the way in which this, this book really showed me how storytelling and narrative have a really big role to play in in dealing with difficult stories and complex stories and telling them in new ways. And it also comes out of the fact that I used so much family history research and genealogy for this book so I kind of did full family histories on everybody and so I'm kind of turning that gaze on myself for my next book and thinking about um, my own family's history in the context of settler colonialism in Newfoundland so um think thinking about um how to tell difficult stories of, of settler colonialism um within the context of my my own family's story Um, So it's really different in some ways, but um, some some of the core themes are going to echo between the two books.
0: That sounds like an amazing, amazing project. Very, very interesting. Julia, I want to thank you for being on the show today, talking about the disappearance of Lydia Harvey, a true story of sex, crime and the meaning of justice. It was a great conversation. Take care. Thank you so
1: much. It was so lovely to be here.
0: Thank you, Julia, and thanks everybody for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.